Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today. It's been kind of just like a work day, I guess, for me. So, sure. Um, you went out and did all of our like errands and grocery shopping, um, and I understand that was, you know... A little stressful but i appreciate you doing all that oh yeah you're welcome um it's good to have food in the house you know yeah <laughs> uh i wouldn't call it stressful but definitely like um anxiety inducing sure uh calgary is as of january 2nd the day in which we are recording this is sitting at a 35 percent positivity rate um the whole province is at 30%. So we are leading and weighting the average higher than everywhere else in the province. So that's that's great. I don't like it. I don't like it either. But I am pretty excited about tonight's movie. What are we watching? This week, Sarah, we are watching Fiend Without a Face from 1958, directed kind of by Arthur Crabtree. Did he like half direct what what's yeah. that i guess he'll tell us the story yeah um so yeah i'm kind of looking forward to this movie i've never seen this movie and it's like in the criterion collection so that means like it's got to be good right so i'm looking forward to watching it it is i think but you're gonna have to correct me on this i think our first time watching a movie based on Pulp Fiction. No, that's not true. Okay. We've had others for sure. Okay. In the early days of American horror films, it was really common for horror movies to be based on literary works. Your Draculas, your Frankensteins, your Jekyll and Hyde's, your Island of Dr. Moreau's. um, Because it gave like some prestige and legitimacy to the genre and helped kind of like stave off criticisms about you know oh it's distasteful because it's got scares in it um by sort of saying well it's it's literature it's culture and since those early days we've seen you know more movies based on novels we've seen movies based on like short stories from Mm -hmm. like short story collections i think and also from um what i'll call like highfalutin magazines yeah like um astounding oh i was meaning like the new yorker Oh, yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, like those those um, <laughs> W. Somerset Mom stories or those M.R. James stories, you know, those aren't being published in like pulps, yeah. right? And then we've also seen like a lot of movies that have just sort of taken those original concepts from the early days of horror and just kind of run with them, right? The mad scientist, the spooky mm-hmm. house, the vampire, you know, and just like run them into the ground. And we've seen like a bunch of sci-fi stuff in the 50s. Um, I guess there was um, the thing from another world based on who goes there. Yeah. Uh, by Joseph Campbell, who was, you know, the editor of Amazing Stories or Astounding Science Fiction. Which one? I don't remember. It doesn't matter. <laughs> 
the point is that I feel like what we haven't seen a lot of so far is movies drawing from like the canon of horror fiction created like after horror movies started being a thing. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. You mean like after Universal really like yeah. found the formula? Yeah. Okay. Like after 1930, basically. Okay. And like there's a huge pulp tradition of like horror stories in, you know, magazines like Weird Tales that was publishing all of Lovecraft's stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested to hear about the basis for this week's movie because it is a Pulp Fiction story. Yeah, I will say that this Pulp Fiction story, it's titled The Thought Monster, was published in 1930. Mm. So it won't quite be what you are hoping for in terms of seeing a pulp story that is coming out after Universal hits its formula with Dracula and Frankenstein. Sure, but I am still looking forward to like seeing something from 20th century Pulp Fiction, you know, by a relatively modern author who isn't like someone who will, you know, collapse into dust and bones like M.R. James, if you look at them funny. (laughs) Now, I'm particularly excited because the author is a lady. Uh, Her name is Amelia Reynolds Long. She also wrote under the pseudonym A.R. Long. She was born in 1904 in Pennsylvania, and early on, Long showed her interest in writing throughout high school and university. Before graduating with her bachelor's in 1931, she already had uh, several short stories published in major science fiction and mystery publications, notably Weird Tales and Amazing Detective Tales. Mm. Yeah, if she graduated in 31, she wrote this story and had it published before she graduated. Yes. Um, The following year, she earned her master's and then set herself to writing full-time, making her one of the earliest women in science fiction literature, notably before the genre's golden age. Hmm. As the 30s progressed, she would kind of turn away from science fiction to exclusively writing mystery and detective fiction in the vein of Agatha Christie. Sure. She said later that the reason she kind of gravitated away from science fiction as a genre is because, quote, science fiction had hit the comic strips, and I felt it sort of degrading to compete with comics. Oh. End quote. Which, I I mean, I understand that being the common thought of comics. I understand that being, like, her reaction, but if you look at, like, what was being done in sci-fi in the 1940s, there's a big difference between like, you know, Isaac Asimov and Buck Rogers. Yes, but I, I like I said, I understand why she's thinking this, mm. even though I disagree with it. So sci-fi was mainly her genre through the 30s, mystery through the 40s, and then the 50s saw her become an editor for textbooks for the publisher Stackpole Books, only dipping her pen for original work with poetry. She became a major figure in the Pennsylvania Poetry Society and New Jersey Poetry Society. And then in the 60s, she started working as a curator at the William Penn Museum, which she did until she retired and then worked as a volunteer there until her death in 1978. Oh, okay. Over the course of her life, she wrote two poetry collections, three dozen novels, and 
just over a hundred short stories. Okay, so we're sort of seeing like a, this is a story from like relatively early in her career in a genre that she kind of like abandoned. Yes, um, the Thought Monster was her third story. Oh wow! Okay. Her literary agent was Forrest J. Ackerman, who also represented Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Elvon Hubbard, and our old friend Kurt Siedmack. Mm-hmm. Now. He only worked as her agent this one time in getting the Thought Monster sold to Hollywood, but he has been responsible for keeping Long's work in print Mm -hmm. and therefore making her name not lost to history. Mm -hmm. So the Thought Monster, like I said, was published in 1930 in Weird Tales. It is focused around a small unnamed town but i think you can kind of just like imagine it's in new england um (laughs) and there are some mysterious deaths going on uh each victim has this like horrible look of horror on their face kind of like imagine joker's laughing fish or his laughing gas only it's like a look of horror sure and there's also no clear cause of death the town names the killer the terror Now, there's a New York cop visiting, and he, you know, does some digging around, and he's like, nah, it has to be some kind of escaped convict who's just, like, so deformed that that's causing this, like, horrible look on everyone's faces. Hmm. So he gets an angry mob together, and then they go a-looking with no luck. (laughs) And that cop turns up blathering nonsense, clearly like his brain's been jumbled around. With no other solutions, the town ends up hiring psychic investigator Michael Cummings. He believes that this terror is an invisible supernatural force. Now, being a psychic investigator, he knows all about supernatural forces, and he's like, Violet Light drives away supernatural forces. So he encourages the town to swap out all of their street lamps, all of their lights, even in their house, to emit violet light. Just violet, not ultraviolet? Just violet. Okay. Yeah. And this does seem to work for about a month until it's almost like this force develops an immunity to the violet light and attacks and deaths begin happening again. Imagine just that one month where, like, your entire town just glows purple. (laughs) I'm into it. Call it Pride Month. (laughs) So this whole time is, like, Cummings is investigating. Um, He's beginning to get pretty suspicious of a scientist who lives on the edge of town who's named Dr. Julian Walgate. As the deaths start happening again... Cummings teams up with coroner Dr. Bradley to go confront the scientist. And um, as they break into his house, they discover Walgate's journal about um, his experiments for science and uh, his goals of figuring out the materialization of thought. Hmm. Basically, Walgate has been trying to scientifically document and validate that psychic phenomena is real and that the reason why psychics can do what they do, like, you know, move a chair or whatever, is their psychic impulses affect the physical world. Hmm. So in doing this experiment and creating this psychic force, uh, this force develops a mind of its own and begins consuming the brain power of locals, and that's what's causing them to either die 
or turn into people with like no minds. Right. Once they confront Walgate, he ends up sacrificing himself by using himself to lure this uh, psychic force into a lead room and using a more intense violet light to destroy it. Hmm. Um, Walgate doesn't die, but at the end he has lost his mind and he's just blathering nonsense. The end. (laughs) So that's the short story. Now I will say, when I read that the short story was about creating like a physical force from your mind right i immediately thought of forbidden planet yeah of course forbidden planet was released in 1956 so long after this short story had been published but that might be why they started thinking about this short story to develop into a film um in 1958 i will also point out that forbidden planet is not adapting this short story in any kind of way no it's sci-fi the tempest Yes. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that is the thought monster. Literally a monster of thought. Right. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, I definitely started thinking of Forbidden Planet as well as you were going through that plot synopsis. So I'm glad that you kind of touched base with that. So as you mentioned, the way that this short story came to the attention of movie producers was thanks to the efforts of Forrest J. Ackerman, professional science fiction fan, and... Ackerman is like a big deal name in the history of like sci-fi fantasy horror fandom. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really ever talked about him before. So I wanted to take this opportunity uh, to kind of talk about who he is and what his deal was. Yeah, go Um, for it. So Forrest J. Ackerman was born in Los Angeles in 1916. He saw his first imagine movie as he called it in 1922 that is to say like a genre picture Uh, it was a fantasy film he bought his first sci-fi magazine in 1926 and he founded his first sci-fi club in 1930 he began writing articles for sci-fi fan magazines in 1932 he attended the university of california at berkeley for one year from 1934 to 1935 and then dropped out to be a movie projectionist and uh, continue his fan activities in 1939 he and his then girlfriend myrtle douglas aka morojo attended the first world science fiction convention which was being held at the new york world's fair Um, Today, this convention is known as Worldcon. It's where they give out the Hugo Awards. Mm -hmm. Morojo created futuristic costumes for her and Fori to wear to the convention, sort of like Flash Gordon-y looking things. Fori thought that everyone would come to such a convention dressed up in costumes. They were the only ones, and this was the world's very first cosplay. (laughs) Um, This idea proved so popular that by the second world science fiction convention like a bunch of people did costumes and there was like a costume contest and stuff ackerman attended every world con thereafter for the rest of his life uh save for two and he became a really big force for sci-fi fandom in the la area he inducted various sci-fi authors into his los angeles science fantasy society um, he introduced Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen to each other after befriending both of those people separately. With Morojo, he would produce a number of fanzines, such as the Voice of the Imagination. And 
Ackerman also became famous for amassing an immense collection of genre film memorabilia, uh, which followed him through a number of homes in his life uh, that were variously called the Acker Mansion, Son of Acker Mansion, and the Acker Mini Mansion. Um, And by the time of his death, this collection numbered over 300,000 pieces, uh, many of which are now part of the Seattle Science Fiction Museum. From 1951 on, he maintained like an open door policy at his home uh, for sci-fi fans to just like drop by, visit, hang out anytime. And in this way, he became like a friend and mentor to like a large number of sci-fi fans in the LA area over the years. And like even people who would do like pilgrimages uh, to his house. And you were basically like welcome as long as you were like a fan of genre stuff. It didn't really matter who you were or what you were. Cool. He maintained friendships with the top science fiction authors of the day throughout his life. And he became, as you mentioned, a literary agent to some 200 authors, um, including in multiple cases, the agent of record for deceased authors who he didn't want to see like get forgotten. In 1958, he began the publication of probably his most famous magazine, Famous Monsters of Filmland, Mm -hmm. which brought genre film history to a whole generation of new readers and kind of established a common sci-fi fantasy culture in North America in an era before the internet or like common home video. So, you know, the reason why certain movies became these like iconic, well-known films in sci-fi fan circles, you know, like London After Midnight, for instance, is because Ackerman had this magazine where he could just talk about them. And it helped maintain a sense of history in the sci-fi community and kept the sci-fi community aware of like older films and stuff. Mm -hmm. He broke up with Morojo in the 1940s. 40s and married a German school teacher who had immigrated to the U.S. named Matilda Varman in the 1950s, um, who he and basically the rest of the sci-fi community called Wendy. Ackerman passed away on December 4th, 2000, at the age of 92, after achieving his final goal, which was voting for Barack Obama. Cool. Yeah, so just like a major dude who often forms like the glue between Mm -hmm. a lot of like unrelated people in sci-fi and fantasy. Um, Like why did Ray Bradbury's short story, The Lighthouse, get adapted into Ray Harryhausen's stop motion movie, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms? Well, because Ackerman had introduced them to each other. Yeah, so I was familiar with Ackerman's name because of the um, famous Monsters of Filmland zine and publication. But yeah, I didn't know. I knew he was a big deal, but I didn't know the full extent. So that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Famous Monsters of Filmland, like by the time he was producing that in 1958, like that's not even a zine at that point. Like it was a full-on real magazine. Yeah. So um, Ackerman thought that his friend film producer Alex Gordon would be interested in Long's short story. Alex Gordon uh, was a British-born film producer in the U.S., um, who we would recognize as the one-time roommate of Ed Wood, who became one of the original filmmakers at AIP alongside Roger Corman. However, by 1958, Alex was very unhappy with AIP, and he actually left the company in that year, 
which unfortunately began a slow decline of his career. But he told Ackerman that his brother Richard might be interested. Now, Richard Gordon was also a movie producer. Um, He had set up his own company, Gordon Films, in 1949, I believe, originally to distribute UK films in the US. But since 1955, he'd actually begun producing his own films. Um, Basically, his strategy was he would produce films in England using a production company called Amalgamated Productions, and then he would, you know, get them distribution deals in the U.S. through his Gordon Films New York-based distribution company. In 1958, uh, Richard Gordon began an interest in producing genre pictures with the sci-fi film Escapement, which came out in the UK in March of 1958 and was released in the US as The Electronic Monster in 1960. <laughs> two, two very different titles. Yes. So yeah, Ackerman brought a uh, long story to Gordon. Gordon was like, yeah, let's make the movie and work went ahead. So this was an indie production, basically. The screenplay for the film was written by Herbert J. Letter, And he was originally supposed to direct as well. But because the movie was going to be shot in England um, and Letter couldn't get a work permit, Mm. they had to find someone else to direct. So Gordon and his co-producer, John Croydon, hired Arthur Crabtree, who had started out as a cinematographer in England in 1931 and had a long career at Gainsborough Pictures, uh, eventually winning a promotion to feature film director there in 1945. It was decided to set the film story in Canada, uh, specifically a fictional town in Manitoba, um, (laughs) because this was thought that it would make the story more accessible to both U.S. and U.K. audiences, because Canada (laughs) is just sort of like... The, a little bit of both. The happy medium. Um, it, it's weird that they chose Manitoba as well. Because um, if I was like, I mean, to be fair, the Thought Monster isn't set in any particular place. Mm. But because there's a cop from New York, I kind of imagine it's in and around New England. Right. The comparable place in Canada would be Eastern Canada, whether that's Montreal Ontario, whatever, but Manitoba's smack dab in the middle. Yeah, apparently they wanted a rural setting that would be easy to shoot in England and like fake in England. Fair enough. Um, And the decision was made to use American and Canadian expat actors working in England at the time. Okay, that's kind of neat. Yeah, the film stars Marshall Thompson, uh, an American actor born in Illinois in 1925. He had signed to Universal Pictures in 1943, and we saw him in Cult of the Cobra in 1955. Throughout the 1950s, he was primarily appearing on television, and he would become best known for the comedy adventure film Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion in 1965 and its 1966 to 1969 spin-off television series, Daktari. <laughs> he plays a veterinarian who's trying to um raise his teenage daughter alone in kenya and she has like an uncanny way with animals okay yeah uh almost like a precursor to dr doolittle maybe not really okay um the dr doolittle movies are based on a series of children novels from like the victorian period that makes sense but yes 
One of the members of the cast is probably more well-known for what he did before becoming an actor than for his actual acting career. Okay. Stanley Maxted was born in 1895 in Kent in England. And when his parents divorced, Maxted was sent to Canada at age 11 as part of the Home Children Immigration Scheme. Do you know what this is? Yes. Okay, so for those who don't, the Home Children Immigration Scheme was basically a plan whereby Britain solved labor shortage problems in the Commonwealth by taking like orphaned children or like street kids who didn't have people to take care of them or whatever um, and just shipping them off to like Canada, Australia, whatever to like be cheap labor for farms. The idea would be that they are adopted or foster kids, mm-hmm. uh, but they were, yeah, just cheap labor. I learned about this from reading Anne of Green Gables. Oh, sure. Max did somehow manage to escape the typical fate of farm laborer. Um, he was placed with a prominent dentist's family in Toronto and got to grow up with wealth and privilege. He studied singing and forestry and excelled in sports, but he left the University of Toronto to enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Force in 1915 to fight in World War I. He was wounded three times over the course of the war. He was buried under a tree trunk that fell on him when he was hit by, like, a shell. Um, Well, good thing he studied forestry. (laughs) On another occasion, he was shot with uh, bullets, several times and on another occasion he suffered um like several instances of gas attacks holy shit um he also fought in the battle of passchendaele so god looked down on this guy and was like no you will live to be in fiend without a face right he was discharged in 1919 as a lieutenant after the war he worked three years in pittsburgh at a steel foundry but quit as he found it exacerbated the respiratory problems he had from the gas attacks he returned to Canada and became part of the reserve force in Montreal, holding the rank of major by 1929. On the advice of his doctor, in order to strengthen his lungs, Maxted took up singing again. In 1929, he gained national acclaim for his performance of A.A. Milne's When We Were Very Young. In 1930, he began singing regularly on the radio. He went on to become a programming director at CBC Radio. When World War II broke out, he produced the Carry On Canada series for the CBC to encourage men to enlist in the Canadian Army. In 1940, the CBC loaned him to the BBC, where he began giving regular notices of blackout procedures during the London Blitz, becoming very well known. Yeah. Anxious to see action, in 1943, Maxted joined the Corps of War Reporters. He was embedded with British soldiers during Operation Market Garden and was present at the disastrous Battle of Arnhem. He escaped Arnhem and returned to his war correspondent duties, including crossing the Rhine in 1945 before switching to covering the Pacific Theater, uh, where he landed in Tokyo with the American troops before moving on to Hong Kong with the British and Canadian troops, and then being present on the USS Missouri for the signing of the surrender by the Japanese representatives. After the war in 1946, uh, he narrated the film Theirs is the Glory, which is about the Battle of Arnhem, and he also appeared in that movie as himself. After that movie came out, Laurence Olivier asked Max did to join his acting company. Holy fuck, what? And he began acting on stage and on radio, as well as in a handful of films. 
Fiend Without a Face would be his final role as by 1958 his health was declining due to his respiratory problems and he died of a heart attack in 1963. The most interesting man in the world. Wow, what a life. That is so much. Yes. Oh my gosh. The special effects for Fiend Without a Face were quite involved for the film's low budget of 50,000 pounds. It's invisible. What do they have to do? Uh, The film's... (laughs) Right. Yeah. Invisible. Um, The film would utilize stop motion animation created in Germany by Florence von Nordoff and K.L. Ruppel. Cool. Yeah. So Arthur Crabtree showed up on the first day of shooting, took a look at the script, claimed that it was not the movie he had been hired to make, and that he did not do monster movies. And Crabtree and the producers ended up getting into like a huge heated argument on the set, with the result being that Crabtree walked. Bye. For the uh, next week or so, Marshall Thompson directed the movie himself. But like under the table, yes. right? Yeah. And then eventually the producers convinced Crabtree to return and finish the movie. Okay. So that's why I was sort of like being cagey about Crabtree directing the movie. Sure. He's the only credited director. Yeah. Advertising for the movie uh, heavily utilized a very short, quick moment in the film of actress Kim Parker in a towel. Um, (sighs) Of course, you know, advertising. (laughs) And the film's U.S. release on June 3rd, 1958, was accompanied by a publicity stunt at New York's Rialto Theater, where a life-sized replica of one of the movie's monsters was displayed in a glass cage outside the theater. It was an animatronic that could move and make sounds, and eventually the NYPD had to order the display removed because the crowds that would gather around to see it uh, became so large that they blocked, like, pedestrian and automobile traffic. <laughs> That's awesome. Fiend Without a Face was released by MGM in the United States on a double bill with The Haunted Strangler, which was another horror movie made by the same producers starring Boris Karloff. Oh, Now, despite the fact that The Haunted Strangler was the more expensive movie at 80,000 pounds and had a big star in Boris Karloff, whereas Fiend Without a Face was basically a cast of nobodies, it was deemed that Fiend Without a Face would be the bigger draw, and it was made the A picture on the bill. Interesting. The film ended up grossing (laughs) $350,000 in the U.S. and Canada which resulted in it being considered a notable success for a picture of its type. Namely, like a sci-fi horror movie from Britain. Yeah, well, it's a little bit like Roger Corman Mm -hmm. fame there. Reviews for the film were semi-positive. The film was considered to be intelligent, uh, well-acted, logical, well-produced, you know, well-directed, suspenseful. But the final two reels of the film, the final 15 minutes came under significant fire for what was considered to be an unprecedented level of gore for the time. Oh, really? One reviewer said that the gore made the film, quote, too unpalatable to be classified as entertainment, unquote. (laughs) The film was released in the UK and Europe by Eros 
films in December of 1958, where it made another $300,000, bringing its worldwide total to $650,000, making the picture a hit. Damn. But the BBFC demanded a number of cuts before even granting an X certificate. And critics in the UK were aghast at the horrifying visuals. And the film was even debated in Parliament on the topic of whether regulation was going to be needed in the British film industry to prevent a kind of like gore arms race between the British film industry and Hollywood, where like Hollywood, which the parliament couldn't regulate, was going to keep putting out, you know, distasteful, crass, crude garbage because it's Americans. (laughs) And that the only reason why British film producers feel a need to put out such ghastly stuff is to, you know, keep up with Hollywood. So do we have to like put in some laws to prevent such a thing from happening is uh is that why it's in the criterion collection because it was hotly debated yeah and it's like a classic of the genre and like made a big splash for its like effects and its gore and yeah well what i like about criterion is as much as um i will say with some sarcasm film bros Mm. like to turn to it to be like this is cinema Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of movies in the criterion collection that are like this where it's like it's notable for some reason but it's not what many would consider cinema sure and the criterion collection is you know drawing attention to like little known or like cult movies Mm -hmm. or films like that that you know have value right exactly the film was released on DVD by the Criterion Collection as Spine Number 92 um, after a full restoration from the original negative. So Criterion releases are numbered um, in like sequential order of release and like they're up in the like 1100s nowadays. So this is the 92nd movie that someone thought this should be in the Criterion Collection. Yeah. Top 100 films, I guess. Sure. <laughs> Uh, The film is available to stream on the Criterion channel and to rent on iTunes. Well, folks, I hope you're able to watch along with us. I am pretty stoked for this, not just because of a a bloodlust for gore, Mm. um, which is so funny because I'm not into gore in like modern movies. Right. But like, it's exciting to see it like slowly ramp up in the past. Totally. Uh, You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Fiend Without a Face from 1958, directed by Arthur Crabtree and Marshall Thompson. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Fiend Without a Face from 1958, mostly directed by Arthur Crabtree. Sarah, what did you think? Wild. Wild. (laughs) What a movie, Ben. (laughs) What a movie. I am flabbergasted. But did you like it? Yes, I did. Mm. Very much. And I would encourage everyone to go watch this because I think the impact that it had on me will be lessened once uh, we get into the discussion sure 
yeah, I really liked this movie as well. Um, it was a lot of fun. It kind of reminded me of the Quatermass films. Sure. Um, as well as Night of the Demon, uh, in addition to, you know, Forbidden Planet. Yes, the yeah. Forbidden Planet thing is right there. <laughs> the thing about Forbidden Planet is the movie's not really like the movie Forbidden Planet at all. The premise is the same. Yes, though. yeah. So the problem is, is that if you've seen one, you'll be able to guess the twist of the other yeah yeah but i feel like it's still oh it's a totally different kind of movie yeah but like even with knowing the twist it still like surprised me in ways oh it's effective yeah because of other reasons <laughs> um sarah why don't you run us through the storyline absolutely this movie is so good okay we are set in an american air force base in winthrop manitoba which i didn't look up but i'm pretty sure it's not real yeah winthrop is not a real place um but if you're wondering why there's a u.s air force base in canada it's because it's the cold war yeah if you are familiar with the military history of nato and norad you will understand why there's an american base in canada yeah surprise that they aren't more north but in any case here we are in manitoba this base is fairly new, with the locals and the livestock still getting used to uh, the sound of planes flying pretty frequently. And when the film opens, we see a man in the woods nearby being attacked and killed by something unknown. And this attack is preceded by these strange, like, thumping sounds and, like, a heartbeat sound. And it's never quite clear, like, what part of the eminent attack sound is diegetic or not mm. the man who is killed is jacques grissel a french canadian born in toronto mm -hmm. who now lives as a farmer in manitoba <laughs> exactly he leaves behind his sister barbara who comes to the base with the mayor of winthrop to basically get custody of the body um, barbara doesn't want an autopsy uh, much to the frustration of our army base colonel, played by the most interesting man in the world, uh, as noted in the context setting, because they want to know, like, why did this guy die? Yeah. But the town is also really nervous about this army base because it is run on atomic energy. There's like a nuclear plant on the base. The army wants to get ahead of any kind of rumors that it's like atomic radioactive fallout or something. But there's no autopsy. Um, so our main character, who is Major Jeff Cummings, drives Barbara home. And then when he returns to the base, he's like, well, you know, it would be easier if we could tell the truth about what we're doing here. And the colonel's like, no, because it's the Cold War. And you see, what they are doing is using atomic energy to power specialized radar equipment while a plane circles above the airbase, which allows them to have surveillance of areas in Russia, specifically Siberia is where they're testing, which is not possible unless they have satellites for the record. Right. But I understand where they're coming from with the pseudoscience behind this. Yeah, they're, they're you know, boosting the radar by pumping it full of nuclear energy. And then that's, like, bouncing to the plane, then bouncing to Siberia. Yeah, the plane's the satellite. Exactly. We do get to see an experiment of this, and 
it seems like every time that they do the experiment, you know, they boost the power and everything seems to be working perfectly, except it's almost like there's some kind of interference or power drainage um, that causes them to lose the picture. Uh, They do try boosting the power from the nuclear reactor, but it's no use. Next, we see that the local Adams family (laughs) is uh, killed by something unseen. And so now the townsfolk are getting even more anxious about radioactive fallout, getting more aggravated about the army base being here. Now, Cummings, because, you know, he seems to have a fairly good relationship, he's assigned to go to the town, find the Adams family and convince them to let them do an autopsy. So they are able to do and the army base doctor is able to confirm with the town doctor that... Their brains are gone, as well as their spinal cords. His brain is gone. Um, It's like something wrapped around their neck, punctured the base of their skull, slurped out their brains, and also ripped out their spinal cords. Yeah. Every nerve ending of the brain must have been neatly sealed. What would they want with his brain? Hmm? What would they want with Mr. Spock's brain? What use is it? And somehow doing this without, like, really affecting the shape of their skulls all that much. Yeah, man. That's that's why you just stick a straw in. Mm-hmm. You know, nature's boba tea. You can definitely slurp a spinal cord out that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> brain and brain! What is brain? As Cummings is investigating, um, we see that he's also getting closer to Barbara, Jacques' sister. We learn that Barbara's work involves assisting a Dr. Walgate here in town, who is like a retired... Eccentric, reclusive... Mad scientist. um, Professor. Professor, whose previous research has been around psychic investigations. Now, during the autopsy of the Adams family, um, Cummings is like, it's like some sort of like mental vampire slurped out their brains. And because he came up with that idea and he's seeing that there is a like a scientist studying psychic phenomena in town, he's like, hmm, he's also super interested in Barbara, but he kind of blows his shot because uh, he gets into a fist fight in her living room with Constable Gibbons. Now, Gibbons is a little bit of a hothead. Um, and he he doesn't believe that it's radioactive fallout causing the deaths. He believes that it's a lunatic GI on the loose. So he organizes a mob to search the woods, but in the midst of searching, he goes missing. Cummings does get to meet Walgate, and he's a strange and sickly man. Um, he's had a stroke in the past. He's very old. He doesn't quite to... He, he's eccentric. Yeah, that's kind of the best way. And when Cummings starts asking about some of his past research, Walgate gets very defensive. Now, during all of this... The mayor is also attacked and killed by this unseen entity. And uh, that means that the town has to call a town meeting to be like, what do we do? The mayor's dead. There's like four people dead and our constable is missing. What the fuck are we supposed to do? During the town hall meeting, Gibbons returns and he's gone mad. Lights are on, but nobody's home. Yeah. Cummings escorts Barbara home and then heads to the cemetery. Makes sense. Um, He is headed to the mayor's crypt, and when he gets there, he sees that Walgate's very identifiable pipe is still here. 
as he discovers the pipe, the door to the crypt closes shut and he's locked in. Barbara and another GI, um, people have names, but I'm just skipping through them. Um, Barbara and another GI find Cummings and they go to Walgate to confront him. Walgate, once confronted, explains that he's been doing these experiments uh, with psychic activity and he urges Cummings to shut down the nuclear reactor. But it turns out uh, they can't because the rods that they would use to like cool down the reactor and all that have been smashed by some unseen force. Further, as Walgate explains his whole experiments, um, we get a nice little like flashback montage thing so we can see what his whole deal was. And it all started with him trying on like this device on his brain to try to turn a page and Without his hands. Without his hands, yes. Through psychic power. Basically manifesting his thought to turn the page for him. And his experiments weren't going very well until suddenly a thunderstorm hit. Lightning hit the house and that extra jolt of power allowed his brain to be able to manifest the thought. Yeah, I think the like basic idea here is that your brain works on electricity. So if you could like essentially just jumpstart your brain with a boost of more electricity Mm -hmm. you could be telekinetic yeah kind of like that movie crank i think no no not at all (laughs) but very much like that movie forbidden planet (laughs) so he's like okay so i will try to use like more energy and he was you know getting places and then the army base was built with atomic power so he's like cool i'll just like without anyone knowing siphon some of that power um you know. except it went horribly wrong and his goal was okay if i can like manifest this being a i won't have to siphon the power anymore but also we would be able to expand this to help mankind rather than just me in my lab um and he does this and that's when things go horribly awry. Um, he returns after that experiment and his equipment is all smashed. And this unseen force smashes a window and escapes. I love that he he explains that like he's trying to create this entity that exists apart from him to kind of go and do the psychic shit without him needing to do it. And because he thought of it as being like thought embodied in his like imagination as he willed it into being, he thought of it as being like a brain with like a spinal cord because it's just manifested thought, but invisible because thoughts are invisible. And it's like, okay, doc. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, just the brain. Mm. The spinal cord came later, Ben. Mm. So, okay. So we understand the origin story of this unseen force. As we're getting this, we cut back to the reactor And the personnel there is getting attacked and killed, and the plant is going into overload. And as the extra atomic power um, is generated, this unseen force becomes seen. And, as Ben said, it's a brain with a spinal cord. And um, these kind of uh, crab or lobster-like tendrils... Eye stalks. Eye stalks, that's the word. Very reminiscent of uh that moment in the thing when the head falls off that guy Mm. and like it grows legs and walks off very reminiscent of that yeah it's like picture a brain with a spinal cord and it uses the spinal cord 
like it was like a, a, a worm, or a, a worm or a caterpillar or something to move around. And then it's got little like nervous system tendrils that it like crawls with and uses for like fingies. And then like it's got these eye stalks sticking out from the brain. It's wild. I cannot emphasize enough how wild it is to see this thing move. Yeah. And kind of the most bonkers thing about this is that there's more than one. Oh, yeah. There's like a ton of these things. They're, they are everywhere. It's like it's like when you start noticing ants in your house and you're like, oh, <laughs> there's an ant squish. There's an ant squish. And then you're like, oh, my God. God, they're fucking everywhere. <laughs> like that's that's kind of the feeling. Yeah, they're reproducing somehow, I guess just from the atomic energy. Well getting willed into being. Yes. I kind of interpreted it as these are all his thoughts from his experiments. Right. They didn't like dissipate. Sure. These things are everywhere and they are out to kill. Um, because also they're like eating the brains of the people that yeah they're evil yeah <laughs> explicitly evil um according to professor walgate uh he also repeatedly calls them fiends which i appreciate because that's part of the title of the movie but barbara cummings the colonel walgate the town doctor the like deputy mayor they've all have had to barricade themselves inside Walgate's office as these things like appear and begin attacking them. Yeah. It's like night of the living dead. If Absolutely. instead of zombies, they were ambulatory nervous systems. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and this is when we get most of the gore of this movie because they start shooting the, the brains and <laughs> they, I wanted them to explode a bit more, but they do have like, a lot of raspberry jelly that comes out, you know? At one point, one gets in and kills the deputy mayor, and they destroyed that brain with a fucking axe. Yeah. It's wild. I'll also point out just that from a 1958 standpoint, just seeing, like, a brain with a spinal cord attached would be considered gory. Oh, abso absolutely. But yes, then it's they start shooting up. them, and they start exploding with blood. Yeah, it's fucking amazing ben um eventually cummings leaves to go blow up the control station at the reactor because i'm sure that'll be safe that'll be fine yeah that, that'll just turn the power off that's yeah, how that's how power plants work, work. Yeah. yeah so he goes to do that wallgate is like well maybe i can control the brains if i head out there and so he goes out there to try to create a distraction so Cummings can get out, and he's immediately killed. Oh, yeah, just like 80 of them just swarm him and kill him. It's... Yeah, it, dude. Hubris. Yes. Anyways. But this way, no one can find him criminally liable for what's happened. <laughs> a, a stiff wind was going to blow him over, so, like, <laughs> it's fine. Um, so Cummings gets to the control station. Uh, he explodes it. This is all intercut with the fiends breaking in, getting shot, and multiple times trying to attack Barbara and getting pulled off. Once the explosion happens, however, the fiends melt yeah. like, like a seventh grade like volcano gone wrong. Right, yeah. Um, Cummings returns, and everyone's happy, and everyone leaves so he and Barbara can make out. The end. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, Doctor. And thank you. 
cannot emphasize enough how you should see what these things look like. It is, I can't say anything other than wild. I just, it's so it's, fun. It's definitely hard to do it justice in words for sure. Yeah. I will say my reaction to it was very much like, okay, don't judge me for this, Ben. But at first I was like, oh, cute little eye stars. <laughs> And then they started moving and using the spinal cord like a caterpillar or whatever and, and stuff. And then I got like really freaked out because it reminded me so much of that moment in the thing. The funny thing about Sarah is that like when stuff happens in a movie that freaks her out or that is a little like too much for her to handle. Like if there's like a lot of gore or stuff that she like was not expecting, um, she doesn't scream scream so much anymore um sarah used to kind of scream at sudden things in movies a lot she doesn't anymore instead she just laughs she just bursts out laughing when something's like a little bit too much for her to handle even if like it's not funny it's just like unexpected yes yep but anyways the movie's pacing really just grips you and takes you along mm -hmm. as i was going through the synopsis I realized how much back and forth there actually is. But when I was watching the movie, I didn't notice that at all. Yeah, we like go back from like the base to the town to the professor's office and back again. To Barbara's house. Right, several times. Um, but yeah, the, the pacing is very um, foot on the gas, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the characters are really good. Same with the acting. Um, it yeah. was really believable i thought the cast mostly did their best um there's some like dodgy accents here and there throughout where like they've clearly got some american actors some canadian actors some british actors trying to do american accents some british actors that have been dubbed with american accents and some actors who have just decided not to care which is fine because like there are, you know, English and Scottish, like, immigrants in Canada, guys. People can have accents. But Gibbon's voice in particular is a little weird. It's like he has a very strong either Scottish or, like, North English accent that he's trying to cover with an American accent by, like, talking exclusively out of the side of his mouth. He's like, if I try to talk physically... Like John Wayne, I'll mm. just sound American, right? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, it, but it, it does. It just gives him a very strange voice. But yeah, I think the cast mostly did their best. I was personally particularly impressed with Kim Parker as Barbara. I really liked her. I thought she brought some depth to a like generally boilerplate role. Like there is nothing on paper that makes Barbara different from any number of female characters in movies like this, she gives her her like reactions and mm -hmm. facial expressions and just like acting beyond what would have just been indicated on the page in order to give like Barbara some life. And even though like Barbara kind of goes through this like hate him to love him arc with Major Cummings because like he's just kind of forcing his way into her life at the start her falling for him is more believable than some of the versions of this that we see, partially because she and Marshall Thompson playing Cummings are like very naturally charming. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of Cummings coming across as like an asshole or like Parker coming across as just like a stick in the mud, it's clear that he's budging his way into her life. She doesn't appreciate it. 
But from the start, you can kind of tell they want to jump each other's bones. Yeah. And so once, you know, the stakes are raised and it comes to the part in the movie where the hero and the heroine are going to fall into each other's arms, you kind of buy it because Parker plays it like, oh, well, good. I don't have to be mad at you anymore because I kind of wanted to fuck you anyway. <laughs> She's also very cute. She's very cute. Uh, very stylish and has her Audrey Hepburn bangs. Mm-hmm. And I really liked how they gave moments for them to kind of like each other. Mm-hmm. At one point, um, when Cummings is like first leaving, he kisses her and says that like if I had more time, there would be more to that and then leaves. And then when he eventually leaves to go to blow up the control station, she kisses him. Yeah. And they also like steal little glances between each other and like smile at each other while like other random stuff is happening. And that really makes you convinced that they like each other because like that's what people in love do they try to just kind of like steal little moments between each other even when they're in the company of others um so i really liked that i also really liked that the script gives barbara a couple moments just to kind of be like cool like kind of be competent her job is like secretary to the professor Mm -hmm. basically um but she seems to be like genuinely intelligent on her own interested in the professor's work she talks about like not understanding it but it's clear that she's like joking when she says that and there's like a really great moment where the brains are attacking and they've barred themselves in and barbara needs to like get the professor's desk his like giant 1950s oak desk over to like in front of the doors to the office to like barricade that and she's looking at the deputy mayor and she's like give me a hand with this and he's just like paralyzed by fear and can't do jack shit and she's just like so aggravated by like the fact that he's not helping her and she's just like desperately trying to drag this desk Mm -hmm. and that was a nice change of pace you know, from the usual of like the woman being paralyzed with fear. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that. Mm -hmm. And they also, you know, didn't make the deputy mayor out to be like some kind of coward. Like he, his being paralyzed by fear was like a natural reaction for him. Yeah. Because it's a bunch of fucking ambulatory brains outside trying to smash through the window and choke you to death. Yeah. And he wasn't played for like comedic relief or anything. Um, yes, he dies, but it's also like a brain comes down through the chimney behind him. You can't really blame him for like dying. Right. The death scenes when the monsters are invisible are like really creepy and well done because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the people getting choked out by the spinal cord, like the fucking alien monster yeah like a face hugger like the spinal cord wraps around their neck and then like the brain attaches to the back of your head and slurps your your, brain out your brain out and the performers who have to like mime getting strangled do like a really good job at it and really make you believe it um but yeah the true fun of this movie begins once we can see the disembodied brains with their little eye stalks moving around in stop motion I think the design is really impressive. I think the special effects and integration of the stop motion is really well done. And I think what also really sells the creature design, especially when you can see it, is uh, the sound of them. Oh, yeah. The 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 sound design for the creatures is really, really great. Um, it's really important when they're invisible for like you always know what's that they're going to be coming. But then like once you can see them. It adds this like really gross, gross quality to the sound. That the like 
wet and mucusy. Right. Yeah. They kind of slurp about, you know. Yeah. Um, and when they get shot, and you know, the brains explode with all the blood and goo that I guess brains are filled with. There's like a just very gross, like <laughs> sounds as like <laughs> Thank the, you for that. the brain goo blood comes oozing out. Yeah. Yeah. The sound design's really good. And. This kind of relates to the pacing, but I think that they ramped up the deaths really well. Yeah, I could have used a few more deaths given that like there's like eight people stuck in that office at the end and only the deputy mayor dies. But I did really appreciate that when Cummings drives back to the base, just everyone's dead. Yeah, everyone at the base is dead. Yeah. And like when we talk about them shooting these brains and the brains like having these squibs go off essentially we're not joking when we say there's a lot of these brains yeah like there's a lot of them to the point where it's like a zombie movie where they're just kind of like blam 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 as the like horde of disembodied brains closes in on them you know and they're running out of bullets yeah yeah it's oh yeah i don't do well with zombie movies so so that you got another 10 years yeah well i mean what i mean is that like that climax was really effective on me mm. um, because like at one point they're shoving their tendrils under the wood to pull it open. Like, Oh yeah. It's, it's oh, oh. They grab a hammer to like break the ported up window. Cause it's like, yeah, of course they know how to use tools. They're nothing but brains. Yeah. It's really interesting to see this movie in a post stranger things world, a mm. post Stephen King world mm. as well. Uh, in the sense of, it's a small town and a military facility, but the military facility is good. And it just so happens that the thing that went bad is that we had a mad scientist nearby. Right. Yeah. And obviously this is because, you know, we still have our trust in our military organizations. Um, and we do have the context that it's the cold war, but all we're doing is surveillance and to make sure that, you know, if we see a bomb goes off that we are, are aware of a yeah. missile being sent to us, we're yeah. not trying to like, do anything nefarious here the uh air force officers keep talking about how frustrating it is that like the town doesn't want them around and they're like if only we could make them understand that like we're just here to help defend them from russian missile attacks yeah so that that's interesting and when is it is it with the vietnam war or does it happen yeah it's it's you mean like the erosion of faith in the american military industrial complex yeah yeah that's pretty tied to the vietnam war with like Stuff like the Gulf of Tonkin and the um, Tet Offensive and like the Agent Orange stuff. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that also sort of walks hand in hand with like the American loss of faith in government that came about through like Nixon and Watergate and stuff. So, yeah, that's that's a little bit of the ways down the line for us here. Yeah. So this is like an interesting um, time capsule almost. Mm. Sure. The last thing I'll say is that, um, yes... We have a mad scientist here. And yes, his science is a little ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But they refreshed things a bit because of we don't see what he's doing. You know, he he's doing his thing and we're just seeing the outcome from it. And I was surprised by how effective that change in perspective is in refreshing that formula. Oh, yeah. Like the way to make things scarier 
is always to take information away. Mm-hmm. So like movies where you follow the mad scientist at each step of his experiment and it takes you like the first 40 minutes of the movie for the monster to be created and then you get like 20 minutes of the monster rampaging at the end because you had to set it all up. That just gets really tiresome after mm-hmm. a while. And the mad scientist knows what's going on because they spent the first 40 minutes building the monster. Like start with the monster breaking out of the lab and yeah, have us work back towards figuring out what happened. That sort of investigative aspect is I think what made me think of Quatermass and Night yeah. of the Demon. Not just the fact that it's like this like British made sci-fi horror movie. For sure. Well, let's move on to ranking. So I had a really hard time ranking this movie because I knew I wanted it to rank high, but not too high. That was my problem as well. So I started by looking where we put the Quatermass experiment. And we've got the Quatermass experiment at number 16, which is too high. So I looked down from there and we have X the Unknown at 28. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this area. Yeah, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Thing from Another World. But right below X the Unknown, there's stuff like Cabin of Caligari and Nosferatu and A Page of Madness and Night of the Hunter. And I was like, okay, no, we're still too high. So then I tried to find where we put Quatermass 2. We put Quatermass 2 way down at 75, and that's too low. So I had to work my way back up again. And as I worked my way up, I saw the white reindeer at number 43. And I was like, that's, that's better than this movie. Like this movie has a lot of crazy, wild, fun stuff, but like the white reindeer has like that atmosphere, you know? So I was like, this is not better than the white reindeer. Um, and I was pretty comfortable with that since right above the white reindeer, we have stuff like the uninvited and vampire and family of the opera and so on below the white reindeer. We have the vampire from Mexico, which was like super dope. Um, and cool and maybe better than this movie because of like the gothic horror stuff or maybe worse than this movie because it didn't have flying evil brain-eating brains (laughs) Um, and then below the vampire we have like house of wax and the queen of spades and then at 47 there's back from the dead and i was like no this is this is better than back from the dead back from the dead's a little bit of a mess this is not a mess there are some things in the movie that make me suspect that some scenes were cut or maybe the order of scenes were changed around at some point because there are certain throwaway lines of exposition that don't quite match up but for the most part the movie's fast-paced enough that like you're not really noticing any problems like that the way that you kind of notice the problems in back from the dead so my range here was 44 to 47 we might have a problem ben oh no what happened I I was really taken with this movie, mm-hmm. as is, I think, fairly evident. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of that is the way that this film has pieces that I see in future horror movies. Fair enough. From Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. all the way to The Thing. Right. It also felt like it refreshed that formula for me. I was thinking... What other movie refreshes things through its use of like gore and like unexpected uh, violence? And my eyes landed at Son of Frankenstein at 14. Hmm. And I didn't really know what to do with this information. <laughs> because above Son of Frankenstein, 
we have really good films that are really well put together. Some are a little jumbled because of code stuff like The Black Cat. And they are all very, very effective. And Fiend Without a Face was very, very effective on me. So I was looking fairly high. Um, but I knew um, it wouldn't go above Horror of Dracula. Because as much as that is re refreshing the Dracula story and vampires and, you know, bringing you know, color into gothic and stuff. Um, any kind of, like, negative points that it might have are less than the negative points that are with Fiend Without a Face. Like you've noticed with, like, uh, strange throwaway lines and, and et cetera. So I was looking really high. So, so I don't know were, what to you do. You were looking, like, like, 5 to 14? Basically. Okay. So that puts us around the Quatermass experiment at 16, so why do you think Quatermass Experiment is better? I'm not sure Quatermass Experiment is better, to be honest with you. I just know that, like, Diabolique is better, and, like, Night of the Demon is better, and, you know, Nosferatu is probably better. Like, there's other movies around here that are less comparable that feel like they should be better. But Quatermass, which is very comparable, um, I'm not really sure if it's better or worse. So that's what I mean when I say I had like a lot of trouble here. Sure. Um, so your floor is like 15, right? Like 14, 15. Yeah. So from 14, which was your floor to 44, which was my ceiling, that's a difference of 30 films. So 14 plus 15 brings us to 29, which is return of the vampire. And right above that is X, the unknown, which is another one of these British sci-fi horror movies that is sort of comparable x the unknown is also right below some pretty classic sci-fi horrors like the thing from another world and invasion of the body snatchers and it's above some pretty classic um british horrors like return of the vampire and some classic like horror period in cabin of caligari and nosferatu yeah so if we stick around this area yeah um x the unknown yeah is the one with the pit and the big Blob. expanding blob monster which i remember thinking like wow i haven't seen a blob monster before and that is in advance of the blob the blob yeah. which i know is like a big horror movie um so i think that definitely you know makes x the unknown comparable to fiend without a face because they both are inspired maybe inspire is the wrong word but trailblazing trailblazing feature things i think that like ambulatory brains is almost like a more unique idea than big blob um as much as big blob was a unique idea in x the unknown but yeah what do you think about some of these movies happening around here in this area as we talk about in the episode on the thing from another world episode 154 it's very much set and steeped in cold war yes and the fear is of an external thing coming and destroying us mm -hmm. and colonizing us and using us for food. Fiend Without a Face is also steeped in the Cold War, but the... Call is coming from within the house? Exactly. It's our own brains, you know, our thoughts personified. And they're, like, thematically, nothing about thoughts personified and brains relates to the cold war stuff that's just the setting yeah what do you think about comparing these two movies i think fiend without a face is thematically weaker 
um, because the Cold War stuff is here so that we'd have an excuse to like set this in Canada, but then have like American characters. And the movie's a little weird just because it's not an American or Canadian movie. It's a British movie that's sort of just giving its version of those nationalities. Mm -hmm. Um, And it comes off like a little weird and a little um, insincere at times in a way that Thing from Another World does not. Like Thing from Another World is like, ah, a hot-blooded American war hawk directed that movie, you know? I mean, his last name was Hawks. Yes, Howard Hawks. Um, I would say that the thematic point that you just made can also be applied to comparing Fiend Without a Face to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I'm going to propose that we slot Fiend Without a Face below Body Snatchers, but above X the Unknown. Okay, I think I'm pretty happy with that. Um, I just want to quickly note that the thematic stuff in Invasion of the Body Snatchers is slightly weak because of the you can use it to defend whatever side you want uh, part of that movie. Yeah, but the idea of the pods getting out and everywhere with Fiend Without a Face... It's clear all those brains are dead. Yes, and additionally, as much as they are a major threat to this town and they're really scary and there's a bunch of them, there's kind of also a notion that like they can't get much farther than this like one dying old man who created them. It's a pretty localized problem. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm good with this. Uh, Slotting in at the new number 28 is Fiend Without a Face from 1958, directed by Arthur Crabtree and also sometimes Marshall Thompson. (laughs) If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, please drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or over Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. If you'd like to help support the show, you can leave us a rating or a review. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed, and you can share the show with your friends on social media or just, you know, when you see them next. Tell them about Scream Scene and how it's a good show and you learned about this movie with stop-motion brain-eating brains because you listened to it and how that's enriched your life. <laughs> the, uh, the podcast, not brain-eating brains enriching your life. I mean, brain-eating brains might enrich your life. Just don't eat brains yourself. It's not I mean, suggested. You can eat brains if you want. No, not well. Animal brains. Sh- um, in, it, listen, check with your doctor and your local laws. Um, (laughs) And your local butcher. Make sure they are ethically sourced. Oh, boy. Remember, keep the spinal cord attached for optimal ridge life. (laughs) If you have the money to buy brains to eat, you probably have the money to help support our show financially over at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, as you might be able to logically surmise, we are watching the bottom half of the double bill. It's The Haunted Strangler from the same set of producers starring Boris Karloff. It's been a while since we've seen him. Yeah. You say that like like there's bad news, Ben. I mean, he's fine. Okay. He's still getting work. Right. Hey, that's nice. 
But we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.